The Richardson family was murdered in 2006, and as if that wasn't devastating enough, the murders were planned by their own 12-year-old daughter, Jasmine Richardson, because she fell in love with a 300-year-old werewolf, who was actually just a 23-year-old dude who lived with his mom, and when they were forbidden to date because she was a literal child and he was a grown man, they decided to murder her family. This is the story of the Richardson family murders. Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and my podcast is called What It Is because I have a weekly series on YouTube where I post a time-lapse video of me cleaning my house, while at the same time I tell you a true crime story. So, cleaning and crime, because I love listening to true crime while I clean. But some people find the cleaning footage a little too distracting, or some just prefer to listen to their true crime and not watch it. So if that's you, you're in the right place. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast, so be sure to check the show notes on this episode for specific trigger warnings. And as always, listener discretion is advised. Let's get into the story, and I am so sorry for the unexpected break that I took. It was unplanned, but it wasn't for any bad reasons. And if you super don't care about my upload schedule or my personal life, totally get it. Feel free to skip ahead. If you missed it, not only did we go out of town to visit family and I got behind, then when we came back, I was super behind on all my chores and all my yard work and on cabin work. Also, my daughter is home for the summer from school. And on top of that, I accidentally got a new job. I've been a stay-at-home mom, if you don't know, and I was planning on going back to work and like starting to apply in the fall, but it just so happens, and I work in the dental field, if you're curious, but it just so happens that a dental office in my town was hiring. So I'm like, I'm just going to apply. There's no way they're going to hire me, but they, they hired me. <laughs> but I just did a full 40-hour work week basically for training, so that's why I haven't been able to upload because it's just been a little crazy adjusting. And I'm part-time for the rest of the summer, and then I'm going full-time in the fall when school starts. Today, obviously, you get a video, and then you're going to get another video in two weeks because I'm going to cover the highly requested Fritzel case, which even if I wasn't working, I would need two weeks for this one because it's a huge case. And then hopefully in August, I can get back to my weekly upload schedule, but I will keep you posted on that. So for July and August, just give me a little bit of patience and grace while I figure out my new schedule of work and research and editing and everything all at once. Once. So I'll keep you posted. And while we're talking about me updating you, feel free to follow me on Instagram because I've decided that from now on with every episode, I'm going to make an Instagram post. It's going to contain all of the photos that I typically put in the YouTube video. So if you're, for example, listening to the podcast version, you usually don't get to see the photos. And I will always post updates on the YouTube community tab, but I'm also going to post on Instagram. So that's a nice place for everyone to come together, get updates. You can leave me comments, ask me questions. We can discuss the cases. So right now, along with this episode, there is an Instagram post up. So feel free to head over there and check that out and follow me. And that's a great place for you to stay updated if you want want more updates than normal. Now, on to the crime. Heads up, this episode does contain the murder of a child. So super tough, obviously. So I will give you a heads up right before I talk about that part. So in case you want to skip ahead, you'll have a chance to do that. So if that doesn't set the tone for today's story, I don't know. Our story takes place in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. And since I took some time off, I took that opportunity to... Read a book about this case. And I am not a good reader, and I read the entire book from cover to cover. So that should say something. If you're interested in this Richardson family murder case, I highly recommend this book. It's every detail you could ever ask for, and it's really well written. So, Runaway Devil. I'll put the info in the description box. But because I read the book, I have a ton of information for you today, so... Let's go. On April 23rd, 2006, a six-year-old boy named Gareth was running next door to go play with his best friend and neighbor, eight-year-old Jacob Richardson. Gareth was actually supposed to spend the night at Jacob's the night before, but his grandma actually scored tickets to the big championship hockey game that was in town. And it was the game everybody was talking about, so that wasn't really something he could miss. So instead of the slumber party, he went to the hockey game with his grandma and planned to meet up with Jacob the next morning. He knocked on the Richardson's door, but got no answer. He saw the cars in the driveway, so he was pretty sure everybody was home, so he started peering in the windows. And when he got to the basement window, he saw too much. Gareth ran back home and told his mother, Mommy, there's bodies at Jacob's with blood on them. I saw them through the basement window. 
his mom, Sarah, obviously stopped in her tracks. Like, that's not what you expect your six-year-old to say. And that's certainly not something a six-year-old would just lie about. So they both ran back next door to double check. And sure enough, when Sarah looked in the basement window, she saw what appeared to be her neighbor, Mark, lying face up on the basement floor in nothing but black boxers covered in blood. And it was obvious that he was not moving and his arms were still outstretched, frozen in what seemed like a defensive position. Then she saw Deborah, Mark's wife, laying nearby, partly behind the couch from her view, and she was lying awkwardly half on her side, half on her back, also covered in blood, also not moving. They ran back to their house and Sarah immediately called the police and all she could think about was how Gareth was supposed to spend the night there the night before. Can you imagine? Four police officers arrived, and after seeing the bodies through the windows, they entered the house and searched the place to see if there was any survivors or if the perpetrators were still in the house. As soon as they walked in, they could see the stairwell leading down to the basement, and there was a trail of blood like smeared on the walls all the way down. And they could also see the other staircase that led upstairs to the bedrooms also had a smear of blood going up the walls. They followed the trail of blood down the stairs to where Mark and Deborah's bodies were, and they found the family's little black dog whimpering next to Deborah's body. Both Deborah and Mark were confirmed dead. Both had been stabbed to death and there was obviously a large struggle in the basement and it was trashed. There was blood everywhere. There was a railing in the basement that was completely knocked down. Police searched the rest of the house and when they got up to the bedrooms, they found, okay, child death part. They found eight-year-old Jacob still lying in his bed in his underwear with a large gash in his throat. Jacob was confirmed dead at the scene as well, and no one else was found in the house. But when all four officers met back up in the living room, they looked up and they saw a family portrait of four people. There was Mark, Deborah, Jacob, and a daughter, 12-year-old Jasmine, who was nowhere to be found in the house. So immediately they were like, oh my God, she must have been kidnapped. So immediately an Amber Alert was sent out. And the search was on to find this missing 12-year-old girl. But little did they know, it was Jasmine who was the one that planned the murders. And she was 12. So let's go back. Let's get the backstory. So up there in Medicine Hat lived the Richardson family. Mark and Deborah met at the gym in 1990, where they had some classes that were geared toward people in recovery from substance abuse. So Mark and Deborah had both attended Narcotics Anonymous, and Mark identified his trouble with addiction really early on, and he was not even 23 yet when he joined a 12-step program to get clean. But both of them did the work. And when they met in 1990, they were both sober, living their best life, and they just fell in love immediately, and they were so excited to start this next chapter of their lives together. And they got married right away in 1991. Mark was described as a bear of a man, good looking, with dark hair and a thick, dark mustache. And he had a very memorable chuckle. Deborah, who was six years older than Mark, was described as very energetic, bubbly, an incredibly happy person with a megawatt smile. Everyone described her as having this megawatt smile. She was a mentor and a sponsor at Narcotics Anonymous. And she was really passionate about helping people get sober. Deborah also started her own business as a Reiki practitioner, a Japanese stress reduction technique, and she'd built a holistic therapy studio in the lower level of the house. She was super into North American Indian spirituality, dream catchers, sweat ceremonies, into stuff like crystals, meditation, and her and Mark also loved to ride motorcycles together. After getting married, they had two kids, Jasmine born in 1993 and then Jacob born in 1998. And eventually they settled down in Medicine Hat. And they were all very happy and very close. Jasmine adored her little brother and played with him all the time. And the family would ride motorbikes together, Jasmine riding with her mom and Jacob riding with his dad. And the weekends were all about family. Like they would get dressed up and Jasmine would go on daddy-daughter dates with her dad and Jacob would do the same with his mom. Jacob, who was eight years old at the time of our story, was described as very funny, silly, lovable, a bit of a class clown, super energetic and rambunctious. He was really into hockey and really into Star Wars and he often pretended to be a Jedi. A happy, healthy, joyful eight-year-old. Jasmine Richardson, who is the main character of our story, was the oldest daughter, and she was a beautiful girl. She had long brown hair, these thick, dark, beautiful eyelashes that I would pay a ton of money for. (laughs) 
She had a lot of friends. She was really well adjusted. She was doing great in school. She was on the honor roll at her Catholic school. And even though they moved to Medicine Hat when Jasmine was in fifth grade, she had no trouble making new friends. Normal kid, zero red flags. Her bedroom was pink and soft and girly and totally stuffed with stuffed animals. But around sixth grade, Jasmine's friends said she started really questioning the teachings of the Catholic school they attended. And Jasmine started getting much more interested in the spirituality that her mother was interested in. Suddenly, Jasmine was super interested in Wicca. She even used electrical tape and made a big pentagram in her bedroom out of it. So it was very stark contrast between that on her wall, like surrounded by stuffed animals on shelves. But it seems like the family was happy and loving and supportive and great. So what happened? Puberty. Well, and the internet. Okay, so here's the deal with Jasmine, okay? When Jasmine was 11, the inevitable puberty hit. She's completely skipped over the awkward phase, you know? Like, my awkward phase was like four and a half years long. <laughs> but she just suddenly developed. And the menstruation, and the boobs, and the curves, and the looks, and just... Immediately, she was much more mature than all of her friends. And when she was 11, she could easily pass for like 16, 17 years old. Did you know, studies show, and I linked my favorite study down below, that when girls reach puberty or develop earlier than their peers, they're more at risk for delinquency, aggressive behavior, more likely to be depressed, socially withdrawn, moody, and sexually active. Anyway, in 2005, Jasmine started exploring the World Wide Web. Jasmine had several social media accounts. There was obviously MySpace, but she also frequented Nexopia and VampireFreaks.com. But online is where she really started exploring her personality, or more, her persona, where she also lied about her age and said she was 15 when she was really 11. She experimented with a lot of different screen names on her socials, like X Killer Kitty X and X Mayhem X and Runaway Devil, which is the one that would stick and became the name of this book about her. So Jasmine's online persona was super goth, lots of dark and creative eyeliner, all black clothing, and she even posed in like black and white selfies holding fake pew-pews. She listed her interests on her socials as things like piercings, scarification, unnatural hair colors, tattoos, wicca, hatchets, serial killers, blood, moonlight. You get it. And she also listed her heroes as Jeffrey Dahmer, Chris Angel, Marilyn Manson, Danny Filth, the lead singer of Cradle of Filth, and Batman. She really paints a picture. Soon the online persona went real world. She eased into it, but over the next couple of months, she went full goth. She was wearing tons of black, doing her hair differently, lots of dark makeup, fishnets, chains, which that's all great. But she went to a private Catholic school. So soon she was getting in trouble for dress code violations. But she was still doing well in school, like her grades didn't drop at all. She was just getting a little bit rebellious. Now Jasmine's parents obviously noticed the change in their daughter, and they were paying attention. She was just experimenting with fashion. She wasn't hurting anyone. So her parents weren't really intervening that much, but they were paying attention. However, boys were also paying attention. Jasmine had just turned 12. Some sources say she was still 11. Other sources said she had just turned 12, but young. And she started dating a 16-year-old boy named Devin. And she met Devin at the mall where all the goth kids hung out. So Jasmine's parents went from just paying attention to, oh shit. <laughs> and at first they were like, you can't date a 16-year-old. But Jasmine held her ground and she was like, mm, I am though. So Deborah said, well, the only way I'm going to let you date this older boy is if I meet him. So Deborah, Jasmine, and this Devin boy went out for tea and Deborah just freaking grilled him and asked him a million questions and Jasmine was humiliated. <laughs> Now, Jasmine and Devin, I guess, weren't that serious anyway, and they broke up shortly after that. But the whole experience taught Jasmine, okay, if I want to date older boys, it's best if I keep it a secret. So Jasmine spread the word throughout her friends, and when older boys wanted to call the house to chat with her, they would have one of Jasmine's girlfriends call the house first. And when the phone got passed off to Jasmine, then the friend would pass the phone off to the older boy that wanted to talk to Jasmine. It was also around this time that Jasmine started frequenting the school guidance counselor, telling the counselor that she hated her home life and wanted to be put into foster care. 
But after spending some time with her, the guidance counselor realized, okay, so there's no violence in the home. You're not being abused. You just don't like your parents' rules about dating? Yeah, I hate it there. There's too many rules. That's not how it works. (laughs) Outside of school, there were some venues in the area that did like punk rock and alternative shows that were all ages, usually geared toward teenagers. So Jasmine would go with her friends to these shows. And of course, they loved to hang out at the mall. Deborah and Mark were concerned that Jasmine was hanging out with older guys at the mall. Like her friends that were 19 and 20, Raven and Trenchcoat. While at the mall, Jasmine was introduced to Jeremy Allen Steinke. And the two hit it off right away and started talking. Oh, and by the way, Jeremy's 23 and she is 12. Mm-mm, nope. No, sir. Now, he didn't know how old she was at first, but by looking at her, he thought she was 16. Still not great. Soon they were meeting up at the mall and they were going to the all ages punk shows together. And they spent a ton of time talking over vampirefreaks.com. And on Valentine's Day, 2006, Jeremy wrote Jasmine a poem and asked her to officially be his girlfriend. And she said, yes. So who is this Jeremy guy? Jeremy Allen Steinke had a rough home life. He was heavily bullied in school. His last name was Steinke, so all the kids called him Jeremy Stinky. He had an abusive alcoholic father who would whip him with a belt and drag him by his ears when he was as young as two. When his dad left, Jeremy's alcoholic mother had a revolving door of boyfriends that were also abusive to Jeremy and to his mother. As he got into middle school, he developed anger issues and trouble with authority figures. Jeremy had ADHD and was really hyperactive, and he really struggled in school, and he ended up dropping out three months into grade 10. In his early teens, Jeremy started drinking and smoking marijuana. Jeremy's mother said she didn't mind his daily marijuana use because it calmed him down and he was easier to deal with and was much less hyperactive. When Jeremy was 15, he attempted suicide, telling his mother he wished he had never been born. And later that same year, he got so drunk that he passed out outside and had to be hospitalized for hypothermia. In the fall of 2004, Jeremy started trying to get his life on the right track and enrolled in the community college to get his GED. But when he came home for Christmas, he found out that his great-grandparents had both passed away and he was really close with them. And he said he was so devastated and so upset by the loss, he couldn't go back to school. So he dropped out and stayed with his mom in her trailer in Medicine Hat. But also in 2005, Jeremy was really finding himself and he discovered the goth community and he got super into it. And he found popularity and camaraderie and like-minded people. And the younger kids in the goth community, especially at the mall, really looked up to Jeremy. And that's where he met Jasmine. Even before Jasmine, Jeremy dated younger girls. When he was 20, he was dating a 17-year-old girl. And his friends said that every girlfriend after that just kept getting younger and younger. Now, in addition to the goth lifestyle, Jeremy got super into heavy metal. And he got super into lichen mythology, probably thanks to the Underworld movies. And online and when making new friends, Jeremy would tell people that he was actually a 300-year-old werewolf. And he started wearing a vial of human blood around his neck. And he told people that he liked to drink blood. A friend of Jeremy's said that he even saw Jeremy cut his hand and lick the blood and drink it. Jeremy would also tell friends to be very careful around him at night and to never hang out with him on a full moon because he would rip them from limb to limb and eat them. That's scary. That's a scary thing to say. Okay, so back to Jasmine and Jeremy. Jasmine would sneak the cordless phone into her bedroom or down into the basement so she could talk to Jeremy in secret. And she was sneaking out to go see him whenever she could. And obviously she was keeping it a secret from her parents. I mean, they freaked out when she was dating a 16-year-old and now this guy is 23. Now, even though her parents didn't know about this relationship with Jeremy, even Jasmine and Jeremy's friends were all super weirded out by the relationship. Jasmine's friends got the creeps, like, why is this 23-year-old guy dating a middle schooler? It's weird. And they were also getting annoyed because Jasmine kept inviting her friends over to watch movies like they usually did. But instead of hanging out with them and watching movies, she would be off in the corner on the phone with Jeremy. So they were like, she's using us as a cover. And Jeremy's friends were like, bro, what are you doing? She is 12. Get a job. There were lots of arguments at home about Jasmine's attitude and about how she kept going to the mall to hang out with like older dudes like 
raven and trench coat. But it still seemed to Deborah that Jasmine was just like going through a phase, you know? And one of Deborah's friends later said she was super surprised when she witnessed Jasmine like talk back to her mom and get real sassy. And Deborah still kind of acted like she was trying to be Jasmine's friend and be supportive rather than like discipline her. Like her friend in her head was like, you're seriously going to let your 12-year-old talk to you like that? You know? Then Mark and Deborah went on a date for a work party and they left Jasmine to babysit Jacob. And at some point in the night, Jasmine decided, this sucks. And she just called up her friends and they all met up to go loiter outside of a 7-Eleven and just left Jacob alone. Jacob called his mom's cell phone while they were at the party, freaking out and scared because he was home alone and they had to leave the party early. And they were pissed. So they grounded Jasmine indefinitely. And I guess this was the breaking point for Jasmine. How dare her parents punish her for doing something shitty? So Jasmine's grounded, can't go to the mall, can't go to the punk rock shows, but she still has her computer. So she's able to share some passionate messages back and forth with Jeremy over the internet. Usually over Nexopia, where Jeremy was soul eater and Jasmine was runaway devil. And this was two weeks after they started dating. Jasmine wrote, So, um, yeah. Do you truly feel that you have fallen in love with me? I really want to know. If so, all you have to do is tell me. You mean so much to me. I don't want anything to ruin what we have, so please tell me everything truthfully. Well, I miss you lots. Hope to hear from you soon. XOXO, later, beautiful love. And Jeremy responded, Well, you see, I fucking love you. Oof. And of course, Jeremy would respond also with song lyrics and poems that he wrote for her full of misspellings and no grammar. And it's very difficult to read. For example, you're the blood that flows through my veins. You're the sun breaking through the clouds when it rains. My love is for you forever as we die here together. We'll be together forever till death do we part. Four out of ten. So anyway, barftastic. But even though Jasmine had computer access and was using the internet, Deborah and Mark were monitoring her internet activity. And they were growing worried at how it appeared she was communicating with much older guys. And with how dark and macabre her social media pages were looking. So Mark actually took Jasmine's computer to a local computer store and asked the guys at the store to help him hack into Jasmine's private social media accounts and email accounts. Because he was worried that older men were taking advantage of his daughter. But no one at the store could help him do that. So Mark and Deborah just decided that it was best for the time being to take away her computer altogether. So they boxed it up and took it away. Jasmine was pissed. She told one of her friends, quote, my mother treats me like a kid. I can't even stand to be in the presence of her anymore. How do I get her to listen to me? And her friend told her, get rid of Jeremy. You should cooperate with your mother and do as she says. And Jasmine was exasperated and said, God, you sound like my mother. If only she would have listened to that friend. Now, even though she was forbidden to talk to Jeremy and her computer was taken away, she still managed to send him messages using the library computers. And she started sending him some sexually charged messages. Again, she's 12. Like one message said, quote, I miss you an overwhelmingly large amount and love you. And also, I want to bang you. Ha 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 ha, love. <laughs> Anyway, I guess the emails were getting just too sexy and Jeremy risked a forbidden phone call to Jasmine's home, which was intercepted by Deborah. Now, Jeremy says that he was actually trying to call someone else and dial Jasmine's number by mistake, but okay. Either way, an older man called Jasmine and so she was double grounded. And Deborah and Mark decided that they would from now on be going to family counseling. And they went and things actually seemed to start to get better. Jasmine was playing along so well, in fact, that Mark and Deborah decided to give her her computer back. But she had to agree to delete and unfriend anyone over 18, which she did. So it really seemed at home that Jasmine was playing by the rules. But when talking to her friends, she continued to complain about how she was a prisoner. She hated her parents and blah, 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 blah. And she was still emailing with Jeremy. And she emailed Jeremy, quote, Rar. I hate them. So I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. So we're set. They're treating me like shit. I hate them so much. I hope this won't bring us far apart. I hope to talk to you soon and love you with all my heart. Love. End quote. Oh boy. <laughs> Jeremy wrote back saying, quote, Well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with like the details and stuff. I wish they wouldn't treat you that way. 
Grr. It angers me to hear that. I dislike them very much. Don't worry, I love you too, my sexy beast. I hope to hear from you soon. Take care, my love. You have the key to my heart, and soon enough you shall have my heart if I die anyway, because if I give it to you now, I'll die. Then you won't be able to hear me say how much I love you. Love, XOXO. End quote. I feel dumber having read that out loud. This is so hard to read. There's no punctuation. He was going for poetic, I guess. Whatever, whatever. Anyway, then on Nexopia, Jeremy posted a poem that he wrote. Quote, My girlfriend's family are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what's going on. They just assume. As their greed continues to consume, she is slowly going insane. She continues to think that I came into her life to help her out and to stop what they keep trying to shout. It's all total bullshit. Their throats I will slit. They will regret the shit they have done, especially when I see to it they are gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be paid. End quote. Well, I mean, it sort of rhymed, so. Then Jasmine tried to sneak out to go see Jeremy, but the door creaked on the way out, and her parents were on high alert, and they were on her like white on rice and yanked her back into the house before her body got even fully out the door. So Jasmine goes back to acting like she's going to play ball again, pretending to behave online, and she manages to convince her parents that she actually just really misses her underage children friends and wants to go to one of the punk rock shows to see her friends. And Mark and Deborah actually agree to let her go on one condition. They're going to. Oh my God, so embarrassing. Good for them. So Mark and Deborah took Jasmine to the show. She gets there, she sees her friends, she has a wonderful time. Great. Then Jasmine sneaks out the back door and into the alley. And what does she do when she gets out there? She meets up with Jeremy and they just start full on making out in the dirty alley classy. So her parents realize that she gave them the slip and they grab a couple of Jasmine's friends and they all start looking for her and they go around outside and they're caught in the act. As soon as Jeremy saw an angry Mark barreling towards him, he just like turned and slinked away and ran for it. And Jasmine just hung her head in shame and Mark and Deborah took her home. Reminder, she's 12 and he's 23. It's just so gross, dude. Mark and Deborah were pissed they gave her an inch and she made out with a 300 year old werewolf in an alley i mean so that was it all freedom was lost jasmine was super grounded no outings no concerts no computer no music took away her ipod no more cradle of filth no more marilyn manson they took away her hair straightener they took away her eyeliner i'm telling you they took everything out of her room so that all that was left was her bed and school-appropriate clothing. In early April, she made another attempt to sneak out and see Jeremy. This time, she got out through a basement window that had a broken lock and no screen. She ran down the road and met up with Jeremy, who was waiting in his mom's truck to pick her up, and he drove her back to his mom's trailer, where they snuck into his bedroom. And while they snuggled, Jasmine said seductively, I want to bang you. <laughs> and they had sex. Then he drove her home and she went to the back porch where she had planned ahead and set out a pair of pajamas for herself, changed into pajamas. And then when she walked in and the dog barked and her parents came running and pretended she was sleepy and said, I had a nightmare. I just wanted some fresh air. And they bought it. Mm -mm -mm. 12 years old. The two kept talking on the phone late at night, secretly, and they would talk about running away together and living in a castle in Europe. And they also talked about how if they killed Jasmine's parents, it would be cruel to leave her brother Jacob alive without parents, so they should probably kill him too. And they talked at length about the film Natural Born Killers, the 1994 movie with Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis. And they related to the main characters and fantasized about killing Jasmine's parents, just like in the movie. After everything went down, Jasmine tried to say that the killings were Jeremy's idea, but it's well documented that it was Jasmine's idea. And even Jasmine's friends say it was Jasmine's idea. And she asked Jeremy to do it for her. So like one day in April, all of Jasmine's friends were like running around, jumping, frolicking, playing and laughing like 12 year olds should be doing outside of the Catholic school. 
But not Jasmine. She was sitting off to the side, brooding and angry and talking to Jeremy on the phone. And her friends overheard her telling Jeremy that she hated her parents so much and she just couldn't take it anymore. And she needed them dead and she needed him to kill them for her. And Jeremy got to the point where he thought if he didn't do it, he was going to lose Jasmine. In mid-April, Jeremy was hanging out with his friend Grant. They were smoking weed in his truck and they were super high. And Jeremy dramatically said, How far would you go for love? Jasmine's pretty much going to break up with me if I don't do it soon. I don't think I can do this by myself. I need somebody I can trust. Are you in? To which Grant replied, Go fuck yourself. (laughs) Great job, Grant. On Thursday, April 20th, Jeremy's friend Grant posted on Jeremy's Nexopia page, like the public page. Hey man, what are you doing? I enjoy hitting myself and making my face bleed. And again, publicly, Jeremy replied, Oh yeah? LOL. Hope you enjoy hitting yourself. I, on the other hand, would rather do morbid things to others. Like Jazz's rents, for example, which I'm going to do this weekend. Yikes. I mean, pop, that's like the equivalent of saying, hey, I'm going to kill my girlfriend's parents this weekend, like on your Facebook wall. <laughs> Saturday, April 22nd. Jeremy was planning on killing Jasmine's family. So obviously it was very important to get completely hammered. There were a bunch of people hanging out at Jeremy's mom's trailer, most of which were underage, and they were all drinking beer, smoking weed, and Jeremy was brooding and wishing Jasmine was there, but she was too busy being grounded and having a lovely family barbecue with her family and the neighbor boy, Gareth, who, remember, was supposed to spend the night that night, but instead went to a hockey game, right? After the barbecue was done, Jasmine took a soothing bubble bath, and then around 8 p.m., she got a phone call from a girlfriend, and Jasmine told her, switch to chatting online away from the prying ears of my horrible parents and the friend said do you want to go shopping go to the mall or maybe go swimming tomorrow and jasmine just replied i can't and when her friend said why not she just didn't answer it would be pretty weird to reply with oh because my full adult boyfriend is going to come over and kill my family tonight so she didn't say that Meanwhile, back at Jeremy's, he had bought a 12-pack of beer, and he bought some weed, and he smoked two bowls with his supplier before he left. Then he went back to the trailer and drank all 12 beers, and he had already been drinking beer since, like, 10 a.m. that day. Then when the 12 beers were gone, he raided his mom's beer stash, and then when he went through all of that beer, he went into the vodka bottle in the freezer. Then around 8.30 p.m., 8.45, he was really drunk, really stoned, and he called his friend Jordan. And I guess Jeremy, over the phone, asked Jordan if he would help him kill Jasmine's family that night. Obviously, Jordan said no. Then at 9 p.m., Jeremy left and went to Jordan's house to confront him in person. Jordan saw him pulling up and tried to hide in the basement to avoid him. But Jeremy just walked in, went down to the basement and said to Jordan, will you help me do this? And Jordan's like, no, I don't have an me to kill another human being. And Jeremy stormed out and Jordan just locked the door when Jeremy left. Jeremy then went back to the trailer and called Jordan to yell at him for chickening out. And he told Jordan, if I ever find out that you or anybody tells the police about this, I'll kill you all because I won't know which one of you is the rat. Oh, my God. So Jeremy and his friends are still at the trailer and they decide to watch Natural Born Killers, which, as we know, Jeremy loved. And he said it was the greatest love story ever told. Give me a break. Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee is the greatest love story ever told. Tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) By the way, they're all still drinking and smoking weed, too. So, okay. And they decide in the movie to spare the little brother who was actually Juliette Lewis's son due to the incest and rape and all that. So they spare the little boy and they tell him, you're free. And Jeremy yells out to the group, that's where we're going to be different. Jasmine's going to kill her brother. And he said it so matter-of-factly. And everybody at the party was like, the fuck, dude? I hear so many people ask in this case, like, how did no one call the cops? How did no one keep this from happening when he talked about it all the time? But I feel like every witness that heard them talk about it was either a child, super didn't believe they were being serious, or was super drunk or super high. But afterwards, every friend was completely shocked and really didn't think anybody was going to go through with it. So I don't know. Take that how you will. Around 2 a.m., two friends, Mick and Erica, overheard Jeremy in his bedroom on the phone with Jasmine and heard Jeremy say, are you sure? you want to do this then around two something a.m jeremy walked out of his room walked out of the trailer got in his truck and drove away i guess jeremy couldn't handle killing his 12 year old girlfriend's family by himself all of his friends chickened out dude get a grip and i guess he decided that 
cocaine. Cocaine was the buddy he needed to help him through this. So around 3 a.m., Jeremy went to his dealer's apartment and asked 18-year-old Cam for some cocaine. Cam was awake, hanging out with his 15-year-old girlfriend, watching Black Hawk Down, like you do at 3 a.m. When Jeremy showed up, they all did a big snort of cocaine, then they smoked some weed, then they drank a bunch of vodka, and then they drank some vampire wine, which is a brand of wine that's marketed toward people that are interested in vampires or identify as vampires. Fun fact, um, the first 500 bottles made of that particular wine was bought by Alice Cooper. Neato. Then the 15-year-old girlfriend gave Jeremy some ecstasy. And then Jeremy bought two more grams of Coke before he left and went to a gas station to buy chewing gum because he didn't like it when his breath smelled like smoke. Priorities. He buys his gum and then he snorts the two full grams of cocaine right there in his truck. So he was just off like a rocket and he headed toward Jasmine's house. When he got there, it was pre-dawn, April 23rd, 2006. Jeremy picked up a pine cone and threw it at Jasmine's window. And when she opened it, she summoned for him to go down to the basement window, the same one she had snuck out to see him through. And she left it open for him. He was wearing a black hoodie, a black neoprene face mask, and he had a knife in his hoodie pocket. Immediately, Deborah heard a noise. I mean, they were on high alert because of Jasmine. So as soon as she heard a noise, she thought Jasmine was trying to sneak out. And she ran down the stairs to try and stop her daughter from doing something stupid. But when she got down to the basement, there's this dude in her basement in all black, wearing this black face mask, holding a knife. The sheer terror. Now, Deborah's just wearing a nightie. And as soon as she sees the strange man in her basement, she starts screaming and yelling and freaking out. And Jeremy is super coked out and just lunges at her, slashing and stabbing. It happens so fast. Immediately, Mark heard the commotion from upstairs and started running downstairs. As soon as he gets downstairs, he sees the guy in all black, covered in blood and standing over his wife. He looks around the basement in a panic and he sees a screwdriver laying there from a project that got left out. So he grabs that and runs towards Jeremy to defend his family. And poor Mark was only in black boxers. All he has is a screwdriver and he's in this standoff with this crazy coked out guy with a knife. I mean, oh, and Mark put up a fight. They were tackling each other. They were screaming. Jeremy was stabbing and slashing wildly. Mark was stabbing Jeremy with a screwdriver. He was choking him. Mark shoved his thumbs into Jeremy's eyes. Jeremy got out from under Mark and tried to run away. But still, despite multiple stab wounds, Mark tripped Jeremy and started strangling him again. At this point, Jasmine's hearing all the commotion and she comes running downstairs to look. She sees her mother laying, not moving on the ground, and sees this crazy fight going on between her boyfriend and her dad and she's like well i don't want to see this and she just walked back upstairs <sighs> mark fell defeated and he asked the masked man who are you but jeremy didn't answer and then he asked why and jeremy yelled at him because you treat your daughter like shit it's what your daughter wanted and those were the last words that mark would hear that's so horrible Deborah had 12 stab wounds and the fatal wound was the one to the heart and Mark had 24 stab wounds and there was no official fatal wound. He just died from massive blood loss. Jeremy was covered in blood, panting, hyperventilating. And as he's walking upstairs, he's dragging his arm along the wall, leaving big blood smears. He met Jasmine in the kitchen who hugged him and kissed him and told him she loved him. And then Jasmine ran upstairs to the bedrooms. Jeremy waited about a minute before he went upstairs to see where she went. Again, dragging his arm along the wall as he went up the stairs. Okay, heads up. Gonna talk about child death now. Jasmine ran into her brother's room and Jacob yelled to her, Jasmine, what's going on? Jasmine ran over to Jacob's bed and told him, shh, go to sleep. And then she put her arm around him and then put her arm around his neck and they just started squeezing tighter and tighter. And Jacob managed to wriggle out and screamed, what are you doing? And ran out of his room into the hallway. And he ran out into the hallway just as Jeremy was like walking up the stairs, hyperventilating, panting, covered in blood, smearing his arm on the wall. <gasps> Can you imagine how horrifying? Jasmine ran out after her brother and Jeremy looked at the two of them and said, we can't just leave him here. Now, we don't know all of the details exactly about Jacob's death because neither of them ever admitted all of the details about what happened with Jacob. We do know that a neighbor woke up 
and thought she heard a child's cry. We also know the struggle happened in the hallway and in Jacob's bedroom. There was blood all over the hallway, all over his bedroom, all over his toys. And there was a lightsaber in the middle of the room also covered in blood. And it looked like he tried to use that to defend himself. That is so heartbreaking. And we know that Jacob was found in his bed with a large gash in his throat. Fucking horrible. And we also know that he also put up one hell of a fight just like his dad. Jasmine took the knife used to kill Jacob and she washed it in the bathroom sink and left it on the sink in a pink puddle. Then she ran up to Jeremy and said, wait for me, I have to pack some things. But Jeremy was wigging out. He was still super high. He was super paranoid. He thought people saw him when he was coming into the house. He's like, I gotta get out of here. So Jasmine ran off to go pack some things, but Jeremy's like, I can't breathe. And he went out to the deck to get some air. And he waited for like one minute before he was like, "Mm mm-mm. Fuck this. And he just ran off to his truck, got into his truck and drove away. And he didn't make it very far before he had to pull over and barf. Then he drove back to his mom's trailer and he just left her there. Jasmine came downstairs with her stuff and realized Jeremy completely ditched her alone in the house with her family's dead bodies. She panicked for a minute and then she got it together and she called for a cab. And then she realized she didn't have any cash. So she had to run to the 7-Eleven and use her mom's bank card and get cash out for the cab. And then she took a cab to Jeremy's mom's trailer. Unreal. Just unreal. The two were at the trailer for a little bit, basically just long enough for Jeremy to take his bloody clothes and put them in a garbage bag. And then they left. Friends that were still at the trailer woke up when the two busted in and noticed that they both looked disheveled and Jasmine's hair looked tangly. The two got into Jeremy's truck and they drove to Cam's place, the one who sold him some coke earlier. As soon as they got there and Cam opened the door, Jeremy looked rough and his eye was starting to swell shut. And as soon as the door opened, he just said, I just got fucked up. I just got fucked up. Cam and the 15-year-old girlfriend got him some ice for his eye. And then as soon as they sat down, Jeremy said, do you know how to clean blood off of knives? And it really freaked Cameron out. Eventually, he was like, why don't you two go sleep? You you guys can have my bedroom and me and my girlfriend are going to sleep on the couch. So Jasmine and Jeremy went into Cameron's room and they had some post-murder sex. She is 12. Jasmine said that she was just trying to pretend like nothing that just happened had happened and that everything was normal. They all slept until the afternoon. Then they woke up and went to a party. I know. And at this party, I guess Jasmine and Jeremy were just like dry humping and making out on the couch and like giggling nonstop. And everyone at the party was like, ew. Like, I hate that under normal circumstances. (laughs) They just killed three people. What the fuck? Jasmine later said that she just really needed to make sure that he was still there and that he loved her because he was the only one left in the world that loved her. Well, I don't know, Jasmine. Maybe don't kill your whole family then. At one point, a guy named James showed up who was a really good friend of Jeremy's and Jeremy got really excited when he showed up and pulled him aside. I guess he needed to get it off his chest to someone he trusted and he blurted out, we killed my girlfriend's family last night. I gutted them like fish. And then Jasmine said, my little brother gargled. And James was like, just complete drop jaw and looked at them both and was like, you guys are crazy. And he just left. Like, what the fuck? He thought they were just super fucked up and messing with him. And he was like, "Mm, I'm going to leave. This isn't the party for me. And he bailed. And meanwhile, while Jeremy and Jasmine are just making out at this party, the cops are at her house going over the crime scene. Now, initially, cops thought that Jasmine was kidnapped, right? So an Amber Alert was issued and cops were out looking for Jasmine. And they managed to track down school officials and the school counselor to get her most recent school photo and to get some names and numbers of friends who may be with her or know where she's at. And the guidance counselor remembered that it was very common for kids at the school to have their friends' phone numbers and emails like taped into their locker. So she's like, I have the ability to go into her locker. So I'll go in and I'll look for some numbers. But when she opened up Jasmine's locker and she found a hand-drawn 12-panel comic strip that depicted three members of a family burning to death while two other stick figures were off to the side laughing next to a truck labeled Jeremy's truck. Very covert. Now, as soon as the guidance counselor saw this, she knew who Jeremy's truck was. It was a small town. So she immediately went to the cops, showed them the comic strip, and told them all about Jeremy. Then suddenly, Jasmine went from a kidnapping victim to, uh uh-oh, possibly a murder suspect. 
cops had already released Jasmine's name to the media with the Amber Alert. And they posted Jasmine's picture saying, we're looking for this girl. Her family's been killed. Oh, it's so sad. So horrible. Oh, no. But then, oops, it's looking like she was a suspect. But in Canada, if a suspect is underage, their name can't be released in the media. So the story went from, we're looking for this 12-year-old girl. Her name is Jasmine Richardson. We're worried she may have been kidnapped. To, a family has been killed. The 12-year-old suspect's name cannot be released due to her age. (laughs) So it was pretty easy to put the pieces together and realize who the 12-year-old was. And just because regular news anchors and papers couldn't print her name, that doesn't stop bloggers and people on social media. Anyway, James, that guy that went to the party and Jeremy and Jasmine basically confessed to, he was at home when the news came on and showed pictures of Jasmine and was talking about the triple homicide and medicine hat. And he put the pieces together and he was like, oh my God. I think they were telling the truth. They really did kill her family. And the friends he was with were like, dude, you got to call the cops. And he didn't want to at first because he was super high and he was afraid of getting in trouble. But he did. He did the right thing. And he called the police. So with the phone call from James saying that Jeremy and Jasmine basically confessed and they're probably still at this party making out, combined with the comic strip... Jasmine and Jeremy were officially suspects and the hunt was on. So the Coke dealer, Cam, his 15-year-old girlfriend, Jenny, friends named Casey, Kaylee, Mick, and Jeremy and Jasmine all left the party and they were all going to go to Mick's place to crash in Leader, Saskatchewan. But when they got to Mick's place, Mick's mother came out and recognized Kaylee as a troublesome 13-year-old runaway. And she was like, no, this group... You're all trouble. Mick, get inside. You all get. Leaving the group with very little gas, no money, no food, nowhere to go. (laughs) So they all tried to like crash in the truck. So most of them were in the front and Jeremy and Jasmine were in the back of the truck hiding. And they didn't have enough gas to like leave the heat running. So they were all just like freezing and not really sleeping. In the early hours of the morning, they went to a gas station to go pee. And everyone went into the gas station except for Jeremy and Jasmine. When the girls were in line waiting for the bathroom, they saw a newspaper talking all about the murders and had Jasmine's picture right on the front. So the girls were like, oh, and they bought the paper and quietly went out and showed Jeremy and Jasmine. They like popped out of the back of the truck and looked at the paper. And Jeremy's like, the picture doesn't even look like you. And they were just like giggling. And the girls were like, if my family was just murdered and I was in the paper, I don't think that would be my reaction. So they were all pretty weirded out. But one of the friends said, well, oh my God, we have to get you guys out of here. Casey mentioned that her grandparents had a cabin nearby. So Jeremy asked them to take them there so they could hide. But the cops were already on to them because the party they had been at had been crashed thanks to the phone call from James. And when the cops learned that Jeremy and Jasmine had officially been there and who they left with, it was pretty easy to track their movements. The truck, like I said, was in Leader, Saskatchewan, and cops everywhere were looking for this group. And there just so happened to be a rookie cop sitting in his car across the street from that gas station. And he saw all these kids pile out of the truck, go inside, and then come out with a newspaper and a couple popped out of the back of the truck. He thought it all looked very suspicious. So he ran the plates and he realized this was the truck that everyone was looking for. They pulled out. He followed them for a little while before pulling them over. He got all the kids out of the truck and then he lifted up the cover that was hiding Jeremy and Jasmine and found them in there with no pants on. Come on, you guys. Weird. Jeremy and Jasmine were taken in separate cars back to Medicine Hats. Long story short, Jasmine was questioned and they started with the bad cop routine and it didn't work. And then they tried the father figure routine and that didn't work. So they decided to go for the cool young cop routine. Like, hey, you can call me by my first name. I'm not a regular cop. I'm a cool cop. And that worked. And Jasmine was like, I like you. You smell good. So she opened up to this guy, but she came up with a story that was basically like she was with Jeremy and a bunch of friends and they were all drunk and she was talking about how she hated her family. And then Jeremy drove her home and when she walked in, her family was already dead. Sure. Over time, he slowly got out of her that Jeremy killed them, but she said she didn't know that he was planning on doing it. She had nothing to do with it. Sure. 
But she showed no emotion. There was a little bit of like really fake sounding whimpering. No real emotion. Jeremy, on the other hand, was a complete freaking mess. He was sobbing. He was banging his head on the table. He said everything was Jasmine's idea. He never wanted to kill anyone. He blurted out that Jasmine had killed her brother and that he was totally hammered. He was high on a bunch of drugs. He was totally freaking out the whole time. He was just stabbing wildly. He doesn't even remember exactly what happened. He did everything for Jasmine because they treated her like shit and he loved her and he knew he was going to jail forever and nothing else mattered. But he loved Jasmine so much. When he asked if they had sex, he denied it. Probably because he knew if he said yes, there would be additional charges. Well, they were both charged with three counts of first degree murder and they were locked up awaiting trial. And while they were both locked up, they sent a bunch of very overdramatic letters to each other. And then in one of the letters, Jeremy proposed to her, you said you want to get engaged? Then here's a cue. Will you marry me? If so, then it is a verbal agreement. And she wrote another letter saying yes to the engagement and then also assuring him that she was not pregnant after their apparently unprotected sex that they had. So that's good. Social media was a buzz about these two. People were posting really nasty stuff on their social media pages. But all the goth kids that worshipped Jeremy were totally shocked. They filled the courtrooms wearing black hoodies. And someone even posted on social media, We're gonna mosh for you, Jeremy. We're gonna mosh for you every Friday night. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> we're gonna mosh for you, Jeremy. And mosh they did. They like swarmed all the local concerts with like Jeremy's high school football number painted on their faces and moshed in the name of Jeremy. And a lot of people were really pissed that they were doing it. Like it totally divided the mall scene goth community. Really something. One crazy thing that happened was uh, Jeremy needed to be transferred to Calgary for a psychological assessment. And they sent an undercover cop to pretend to be another prisoner to see if Jeremy would talk about the crimes. And he did. Yeah, I'm the guy from the paper that did that triple homicide. Yeah, me and my old lady were legends. She's not an old lady, Jeremy. She is 12. Anyway, he confessed to everything and gave a ton of details before they even left Medicine Hat. I just thought that was clever. Put in an undercover cop like, hey, bro, what are you in for? And it totally worked. Awesome. Jasmine was also given a psychiatric assessment and she was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, in case you're curious about that. In the end, Jeremy was found guilty of three counts of first degree murder and he was sentenced to life without parole for 25 years. And that's where Jeremy Steinke remains to this day. Jasmine was also found guilty of three counts of first degree murder and she was the youngest person ever convicted for multiple homicides in Canada. But due to her age, the maximum sentence that she could receive was six years followed by four years of conditional supervision in the community. And they took the 18 months that she had already spent in jail into account and gave her a credit for that. So in 2016, at the age of 22, just a year younger than Jeremy was when they committed the crimes, Jasmine was released. The justice at her release said, quote, you can never undo what you have done to your mom, dad, and little brother. However, what you can do is honor their memory by dedicating your life to becoming the woman your parents and brother would be proud of, end quote. And if she kept her nose clean for five years, her record would be expunged. And guess what? She did keep her nose clean for five years. Her record is clean. She got a whole new name, new identity, and she's just out there living free as a bird with a whole new name out there in Canada somewhere. <gasps> Can you believe that? Dude, these murders and trials were very sensational in Canada, and they were often compared to the Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo case, the Ken and Barbie killers, because that was also a very sensational case in Canada. I think this story is a lot like the Twilight killers that I covered, like the 14-year-olds that killed the girl's family because they couldn't be together, and they also killed the sibling because they felt bad leaving her with no parents. It's very strange, but it's crazy to me that she just only did like 10 years and she was just free as a bird. She's out there somewhere. It's, it's crazy. Wowza. Well, that's it. That's the whole story. <laughs> what do you guys think? Horrific. Rest in peace to Mark, Deborah, and Jacob. Just horrible. Thank you guys so much for watching. I hope you found this story as interesting as I do. Make sure you check out my Instagram post that goes along with this story. Feel free to comment. Let me know what you thought of this case. And if you have a case to recommend that you want me to cover, feel free to leave that in the comments too. And again, I will be back in two weeks and we're going to do the Josef Fritzl case that was highly requested. So I'll see you on Monday, July 24th for my next case because I need a little extra time to research because it's a big, big case. 
So I'll see you guys in two weeks. Thank you so much for watching. Bye.